uh, sorry, last Saturday was the, the commemoration of the 21 martyrs. Yeah, it's, it's working. It, it's picking up Abun Andrew's voice as well. Um, and so I thought today we could talk a little bit about the, huh? No. Um, we'll, we're going to talk a little bit about the 21 martyrs. I know you guys are really far back. Um, this happened about five years ago, so I guess today, this week is the, the commemoration. And it does kind of fit in that uh, Lent is starting tomorrow, and so I kind of want to tie it into Lent just a tad. Uh, I'm sure all of you remember uh, these images and these, uh, the postings on Facebook and the postings all over the place when these videos came out and ISIS released uh, the actual video of, uh, of the beheading. Um, so I want to talk about... Oops. This is a, a modern icon of, uh, of this depiction. Uh, Tony Risk made this icon. It's actually a digital icon, of all things. Um, it's really the only icon we have, so that's why I kind of put it up. All right, so what happened in 2015? Uh, February 12th, ISIS kidnapped uh, these migrant workers. Uh, 20 of them were from uh, Minya, um, from different places in the Said. Um, February 15th, they released a video showing them being executed. Um, and six days later, Amba Tawedros uh, announced that this would be commemorated on February 15th and be added to the Sinexar and the new ver version of the Sinexar. So this is actually now a feast day, if you will, in our church. Um, and then the question you have to ask is why would the bishop or the, the patriarch do that? Why would he commemorate uh, such, or, such a horrific event? Um, you know, by, by many measures, a really, really horrible, horrible thing, right? And it's kind of an odd thing to do um, if you look at it from a worldly perspective, right? I mean, it's like, you know, when, when you go to a funeral, no one takes pictures at funerals, right? It's not something you want to remember, right? So very few cameras come up at a funeral because it's just not something, you know, I would rather remember the person alive and happy and post a picture of them living and but yet this event was something that the church chose to add as a commemoration, the, the event of them being beheaded, um, which we would think is a very horrendous event. Uh, President uh, of Egypt, Assisi, announced a seven-day national mourning in Egypt, uh, which was really nice. Um, you know, he's obviously uh, an Islamic uh, president, but yet he, you know, in the show of unity with the Christians, did that. Uh, and then... Uh, actually, it was interesting because then the Obama administration was criticized because the Obama administration said that these were all Egyptian citizens as opposed to Christians, right? And we know they were executed because they were Christians, not because they were Egyptians. So he kind of turned into a political thing versus a religious thing. Um, but I kind of want to talk about the 21st martyr. Um, so the 20, there's 20 martyrs, and I'll just read it to you. After the beheading, the church released their names, but there are only 20 names. So they figured out who the 20 were. But there's this one guy, it turns out he's from Chad, and he was originally a non-Christian, but when he saw the faith of everybody else, he said, their God is my God. And it's kind of an amazing thing. That's him. Um, and you see him, he's the one African-American in, in the icon in the pictures. Um, and it's really an amazing thing. And what's really amazing to me about this is that you know, we read these stories in the cynics are in the history of the church where, you know, name your martyr, St. George or St. Mina is being tortured, right? And the governor's out there, he's torturing him in public. And then you read these really weird stories where like 200 people raise their hand and say, we're Christians as well. And you're like, 
really? And then the governor, of course, executes all of them, the 200 people that raised their hands. So this, this you know, St. George is being, is being tortured. 200, 500 people raise their hands and say, we're also Christian. He kills all of them. He doesn't want to kill St. George yet because he wants him to recant, right? He wants him to deny the faith in front of everybody, right? It's, it's a typical thing in the period of persecution that you kind of strike at the, the leadership, right? You want to strike at the people who are the most visible. Um, and this is why, by the way, in the early church, when someone was ordained a bishop, he was pretty much ordained a bishop and a martyr because it was just a matter of time before they found out who the bishop was and executed him, right? So the Roman government, I mean, the full you know, force of the Roman government and army was out to kill and destroy Christianity, right? So that was the decree, right? And it is kind of a miracle that, you know, that the full weight of the Roman Empire, who had no sense of, of, of decency or humanity or human rights, I mean, they would just execute villages if they had to, right? That they couldn't stop Christianity, right? That 12 guys did this to them, right? And they couldn't stop it. It's amazing. But the way they would do that is they would try to kill the bishop. So every time they figured out who the bishop was in the city, they would kill him, right? And that, that way, they would try to scatter the, the church. Um, and so the, the, these guys who were torturing the martyrs wouldn't want to kill them quite yet. They wanted them to recant so that other people would lose their faith. And um, you'd see these people converting in masses, right? In fact, uh, Tertullian writes that the blood of the martyrs became the seeds of the church, and it was, it was like that, right? Where someone would be executed, his blood would fall to the ground, and from there would sprout more Christians. And it was just so counterintuitive to what you would expect would happen, right? But what, what's amazing about this story is what you see here is exactly what we read in the history of the church, right? That, that the, the effect of, of someone was so strong, that the others were so strong, that he said, you know, I want what they're having. I'm with their God. Right? I'm, I follow their, their Christ. Right? And he didn't say that because, you know, he wants to marry a girl, right? Or he wants to get into the church because he needs a job. Or he has a friend who took him, right? Or hears they have really good services. He's doing this, and there's guys with guns and knives there. And he knows how this ends, right? He's not saying, you know, I want to be a Christian for some alternative. You know, he sees how this is going, right? These guys are going to kill them. Right? And as a matter of fact, after this was released, we find out later that, I don't know if you guys saw the video of them being marched out, it was very professionally done, that they had done this video several times, right, and actually marched them out, put the knives to their throats, and then not execute them, hoping that one of them would recant or deny the faith, right? So they were trying to psychologically break them, and they would videotape it every single time. And they did this over and over again, trying right, to just get them to think about it, right, because you can maybe, you know, be strong once, right, but after a couple of times, you, you, you think about it, right, you go home and you sleep on it, and you, right, and they did this over and over again in an attempt to break them. So anyway, he saw this, he knew this, he knew how this ends, right, but yet their faith illumined him, right, which is something we see in the history of the church, which, you know, coming back to ISIS in general, them videotaping this thing was like one of the best gifts ever to the church, right? Because, and we'll, I'll point out some other things, what we saw in the video was just absolutely amazing, right? And it's a gift. It was meant to be propaganda. It was meant to scare people. It was meant to do a whole slew of things, and it did exactly the opposite, 
right? And one of the, 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 the best things they ever did was videotape this for us, right? And, and this is the effect, right? This is like what Tertullian said, right? The blood of the martyrs became the seeds of the church, right? We see this. I remember when I was in, um, when I was in Egypt uh, during the Palm Sunday bombing. So I was actually in Egypt when the Palm Sunday bombings happened. Of course, I had no idea this happened until people started texting me and saying, are you okay? And like, what happened? Um, but this was obviously Sunday. So Monday was Holy Week, right? So we go to church on Monday night for Pascha. And I can tell you that I used to go to this church in this, like, you know, kind of bougie part of Egypt, right? And it was kind of empty, and there was a lot of, like, really rich people there. And, it, you know, it wasn't really a very full church or very lively church. I'm judging now. Um, and on Monday, we go to church, and it's packed. Packed. It's a Monday night Pescha. No one comes to Monday night Peschas, right? It's packed, and the church is roaring. I mean... When they were singing, it's like the, the church was shaking. I even recorded it at one point, took out my, my phone and just wanted to remember the sound of the church as they were singing um, the prayers in the church, right? And I even turned to the kids and said, do you hear them, right? It's almost like it was this defiance, right? It's almost like, you know, the act of martyrdom brought people to the church, right? And it may even be a different group of people, right, people who really wanted to be there for the right reason. Anyway, so this is the effect that these Christians had on this man, right? And it corresponds with what we've seen uh, in the history of the church. So I want to read you a quote from what, uh, what Christ said in the book of uh, Matthew. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Every once in a while, when events like this happen, our immediate response is, you know, how could we let this happen? We have to stop this from happening, right? The government has to step in. You know, the American government has to impose sanctions. We have to send in the F-16s and blow something up, right? Every time Christians are attacked or persecuted or killed, our church, Russian church, Catholic church, you know, in South America, name it, right? We immediately have this reaction of, you know, how could this be? How can we let this happen? We need to put together a political action committee. We need to let Congress know about the Coptic situation. We need to, you know, our lives matter, right? Coptic Egypt, we need to, you know, we need to make, raise awareness. You know, you go to the college campuses and they're picketing, right? They want to raise awareness. And, and you know, I, I don't want to rain on anyone's parade, right? But when we think about those solutions, those are all very human solutions. They're secular solutions, you will, they're atheist solutions, right? I mean, Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. So the solutions are not of this world. And when we read a verse like this or this passage, we realize that this is sort of the deal, right? Christ said, you will be hated. You will be persecuted, right? They will hate you like they hated me. They will send you up and they will flog you and they will kill you. Right? In the world, you will have tribulation. This is the promise of Christ. Christ never said anything but. Right? In, fact, the very, in fact, Christ himself died at the hands of some monsters 
and it never stopped. All the apostles, except for St. John, died at the hands of monsters. Millions of Christians died at the hands of monsters. In fact, the church has never really lived in an all-Christian country, right? I mean, we've always been persecuted, starting from the Romans, right? Does anyone know when we were started getting persecuted? Who knows their history? Right, when Nero burned down Rome in 64 AD, right, that started it, and he blamed it on the Christians. Ever since then, the church has been persecuted by the Roman Empire, and then it went to the Muslims, and then it went to the communists, and then, it, I mean, you name it, right? Drug dealers in, in, in South America. The church has always been persecuted, right? So, uh, so sometimes, you know, every once in a while, you'll, you'll be here, and you're, you know, you're in the United States, and, you know, there'll be the, the Christian right or somebody who'll be like, you know, we need to make America a Christian country again. You know, why? Who said we needed that? Who said that has to be an objective? Since when have we ever lived in a Christian place as Christians? Right? Everywhere we've lived, we've been persecuted. And no matter how the, the government functions, we'll be persecuted again. Right? Christ made this promise. So I want to kind of step back and say when we observe something like this, the solution isn't some political solution. We need to do more lobbying. We need to get, raise awareness. We need to tell people about our, our plight. Right? The solution, it's a, it's a heavenly solution, right? It isn't actually an earthly solution that we, that we have to engage in to, 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 to help deal, for us to deal with this issue. So St. Isaac the Syrian, he's one of my favorites. He writes, do not foster hatred for the sinner, for we are all guilty. Do not foster hatred for the sinner, for we are all guilty. Hate his sins and pray for him so that you may be like unto Christ, for he had no dislike for sinners, but prayed for them. I mean, if you start to go down the path and say, well, that person deserved it, right? And we see this every once in a while. What would you do, Mark? Um, it's like salt on the wound. I had a crying child. And, um, that's what I do best. Um, what am I saying? So um, if we go down the path, of hating the sinner and hating the ISIS and hating the Muslims and hating whoever persecutes us, right? You know, well, you, if you kind of follow that logically and you say, well, you know, well, why, why, do they, why do you hate them? Well, they deserve it. Why do, you, why do they deserve it? Well, because they're sinful and wrong and bad. You know, and then the next kind of logical question is, and you aren't? I mean, if, if Christ treated you the way you deserve to be treated, how many of us stand up to that test, right? If, if we get what we deserve, how many stand up to If there is no mercy and there's just justice, right? How many of us stand there and go, yeah, I'm ready? Shouldn't be any of you, any of us, right? So if we then turn around and impose that standard on other people and say, yeah, but they, he murdered or he did this or he, you know, burned something down, then you're, then you're, you're, you're imposing a different standard. You say, I want this standard on me but I want that standard on him, right? So St. Isaac always talks about loving the sinner, right? Because, you know, when we go back and we look at this picture and we think about what happened, you know, who should we feel sorry for in this picture? The guys in orange? The guys who are in heaven? The guys who are happier than we are? I think we should feel sorry for the guys in black, right? They're the ones who have to go home and sleep that night, knowing what they did, 
And they're the ones that have to go home a year later knowing what they did. And I wonder how many of those guys have tears in their eyes as they're cutting off someone's head. That's maybe why their eyes are covered, their face is covered. And how many of them couldn't sleep that night? And how many of them have like recanted Islam since? Right? The guys we should really feel sorry for in that picture are the guys in black. The guys who are deceived. Right? So the idea of, of retribution and allowing God to be our, our stick. right? Say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God will get them. And we have this deep you know, satisfaction that God's going to retaliate on our behalf because we were persecuted and God's going to get them back. That's just anger. That's just violence. That's just hatred. It's not love. Right? So we can never react like that. We can never allow ourselves to go down to that level. Right? Not because we're better than anybody else, but this is, this is the way God reacts with us, and we should at least try to mirror that with other people or do our best. And he says, hate his sins, but pray for him so that you may be like unto Christ. So that you may be like Christ. I mean, that's the reason we do that. Okay. Um, so the word uh, mar martyr means witness. So at some level, everyone is called to be a martyr. All of us are called to be witnesses of Christ. Right? This is sort of our role. Um, in fact, uh, the, the, the martyr is kind of the highest level in the church. And Christianity is basically death with Christ, right? I've, I've, I know I've said this quote before, but um, this beautiful quote on the monastery walls of, uh, uh, of a monastery in Greece, in Mount Athos, it says, if we die before we die, then we won't die when we die, right? If we die before we die, then we won't die when we die. So life is death with Christ, isn't it? And when we read the words of St. Paul over and over again, Paul never actually, if you look at the words of St. Paul, he never even talks about Jesus. He doesn't recant his, recount his life. He doesn't talk about stuff he did. He just talks about the cross over and over and over again. For, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? This is the kinds of words that St. Paul says all the time. And so we're called to be martyrs. In fact, when martyrdom ended in the church after, so we have, you know, Nero started martyrdom, right? And we have 10 emperors, right? That, so Diocletian, Diocletian is the last emperor. He's the worst emperor, right? And, you know, there are numbers like he killed 800,000 people in Egypt alone, right? Trying to wipe out Christianity, which just goes to show you how much power these guys had and how much of a miracle it is that Christianity survived when one guy can just say, I'm going to take out 800,000 people. Um, but anyway, um, and, and then after him came Constantine, and Constantine allowed Christianity, right? He, he declared it a state religion. Um, where was I going with this? Um, so what, the, what happened right after this was allowed is that people were kind of like, you know, bummed, right? There are a few people who wanted more. They wanted martyrdom to come back. They wanted that, that life, right? Because I can, you can imagine what this church looks like. The people in this church look like if, if when we leave, the Tustin police could be waiting outside and execute all of us, right? So what does the church look like? Who's in the church now when we got to look both ways before we walk out to make sure the army isn't there to execute all of us? The people are really, really serious, right? And then after the church no longer is persecuted and martyrdom doesn't happen, what do you think the church like look, look like then? 
you know, it's kind of fun. A lot more people started coming, right? There's a lot of people just kind of showing up for business ties. The emperor is a Christian, so we might as well be Christian. If you want to get political gain, you might as well be Christian. So what do you think the quality of the church looked like inside when the church went from, you know, 20 people huddled together, worried about their lives, to 2,000? So that's why monasticism started, right? It's almost that people fled to the, to the desert because they wanted to keep dying, right? They wanted to keep dying to themselves. They wanted martyrdom. So we, we went from what's called red martyrdom, the martyrdom of blood, to white martyrdom, which is the church's way of saying St. Anthony and St. Paul and St. Macarius, all these monks went out and they said, no, we don't want to just live the way the church is. We want more. So monasticism evolved as a reaction to the end of martyrdom. People actually became monks for that reason. Uh, St. Paul says, for your sake, we are killed all day long. For your sake, we are killed all day long. So martyrdom is a part of us. It's not something we fear or afraid or when it happens, we need to go call our congressmen and raise awareness and say, you need to stop that and send in F-16s. Martyrdom is a part of the Christian character, right? It's embedded in, in the life of the church. Everywhere you go, every period of time, right, this happens. Um, so what's church's position on ISIS? Love, of course, right? And is this act a catastrophe? Was it a bad thing? Or was it a good thing? Were these 21 martyrs, this, this hideous thing, I mean, when I go back and I look at it, you know, we're looking at it five years later, it's almost like everything that occurred because as a result of this act was good, right? You have these, these 21 people who are in heaven. You have families, which I'll show you a video if we get some time, of, 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 the, of the sisters and the brothers and the uncles and the moms and the way they talked about their, their martyred sons and brethren, right? One of them even said... When we saw them executed, we were so happy because we knew he didn't give up his faith. We were worried that he would give up his faith. We were worried he'd deny Christ. And if he denied Christ, he'd get away with it. He'd, you know, they'd let him go. So they were happy when they saw him go all the way. That's what one of the moms said. It's amazing, right? Now, imagine the parents of these martyrs, right? I mean, think about us as parents, right? We're all here at church, and we all bring our kids to church. Why do we bring our kids to church? Why do you bring your kids to church? It's a pain. It's long hours. You got to get them dressed. You got to deal. The mornings. Why do we bring our kids to church? Because we want them to go to heaven. Only reason. No other reason, right? Not because we want them to become a doctor or to stay off drugs or to, you know, marry someone good or get a Mercedes, right? We, get them, we bring them to church because we want them to go to heaven. So imagine, imagine the moms that got to see their sons as martyrs. Like, you made it. Like, parent of the century, right? Your kid is a martyr. You know, and forgive me, not like a martyr like the Palm Sunday bombing martyrs where you know, you're in church and a bomb goes off and, okay, you know, you got it, right? This is, this is very different, right? This is a knife to your throat, deny and we'll let you walk, martyrdom, right? I mean, these parents, like, 
they made it as parents, like the ultimate sign of, of success as a parent, right? Really quite amazing. Okay. I'll just keep clicking. I think I said some of these things. So quickly, what does persecution do to the church? I want to give you a little um, test case of, of, of the Russian church. So you all know that before 1917, when, when the Russian, Russian Revolution happened, czars ran Russia, right? They're like these kind of king guys. And they were very embedded with the church, right? So the czar and the patriarch were very close, right? And there was a lot of corruption in the Russian church, okay? And every time there's power and clergy, power and clergy should not go together, right? And, and this is, again, one of the fears of being in a country that allows Christianity and encourages it, right? If you know the mayor and the governor and you're tight with the, with the, with the, with the bureaucracy and the government, it's dangerous for a clergy member, right? Because, because those two just shouldn't mix. Like, a clergy is meant to be a servant, right? Christ came and washed the feet. Christ came and served others, right? Not to be served not to have power, not to have prestige, not to have anything like that, right? So in, in the Russian church, there was a lot of corruption because, you know, if you wanted to give someone, uh, you know, something, you know, for, for a political favor, you can ordain his son a priest, for example. And that's a very powerful position. Right? So there's a lot of corruption there. So the, the, the communists take over, and the, the state was committed to the destruction of religion and destroyed churches, ridiculed, harassed, incarcerated, and executed religious leaders, flooded the schools and media with atheist teaching, and generally promoted atheism, right? So the communists come in, and you all know the story, they went nuts, right? Killing people left and right. In fact, um, many of the estimates that come back now, you know, now that history's kind of passed, is that, that uh, starting, with, starting with Stalin, who was a nut job, he killed between 12 to 20 million Christians in his country, trying to eradicate Orthodoxy, try to eradicate Christianity. He killed about 100,000 priests. Right? He executed and imprisoned 100,000 priests, and none of those priests ever came back. So this was how ruthless the communist regime was when dealing with the church. So what's amazing here is all these churches are closed for like, whatever, 70 years, then Gorbachev comes along, you have Perestroika, he reopens everything, and now what do you think happens after 70 years of this mass statewide execution, persecution? How do you think the church comes back? You think it's just gone. It comes back roaring. And it's amazing, right? The church like instantly was alive, right? And, and, and everyone talks about how the moms and the grandmothers fed their babies the faith. Underground, they taught everyone the faith, and they kept the church alive in all of its tradition and all of its ritual, very much alive. And as soon as persecution ended, the church came back, and now there's tons of monks and tons of clergy and tons of people in the church immediately. And now the Russian church is one of the biggest churches in the world, and a very powerful, very spiritual church, because the persecution cleansed it, right? It, it got the, you know, it's kind of like pouring alcohol on a, on a wound, right? It stings. Right? But it eventually cleanses it. Right? Now the church is it's a beautiful church. Right? So persecution isn't always a bad thing. Right? In fact, our church, when it's persecuted, is very prayerful. Isn't it? People are 
praying a lot. People are asking God for help a lot, right? So persecution brings about prayer. And I put a picture of Yeltsin. <laughs> no, not Yeltsin. Um, Putin and uh, the current patriarch, like kind of like this is an uh-oh picture. <laughs> Hopefully you don't get back too close together. Okay. Um, all right, I'll, let me, uh, let me uh, move on just a little bit. So I think we're... So I, I was going to talk more about loving your enemies, but I think I'll stop there. Um, so I want to talk about the concept of offering in the liturgy and sort of where this comes, uh, how this ties in. Um, so who offers the liturgy? Who is the person who offers the liturgy? Is it a Buddha? Don't say a Buddha. Right? Christ offers the liturgy. Right? In fact, in, in one of the parts in the Gregorian liturgy, uh, we're all half asleep during that time, usually in Hungary, but one of the parts that he says is, oh, you who broke in the past, now break. So as Abuna is breaking, he says, oh, you who broke, he's talking to Christ, who broke the bread in, you know, in the past, break now. So whose hands are breaking? It's Christ's hands who are breaking the bread. And Abuna is just standing there. He's a figure of what of the true priest who's Christ. Right? So Buddha, the priest doesn't offer the liturgy. Christ offers the liturgy. So he's the priest. And who is the sacrifice? Who is being offered? So Christ is the priest who offers. And who is the sacrifice? Who is the sacrifice? He is. So he's the offered and the offerer. He's both, right? In fact, the only thing we can offer back to God is God, right? The best thing we have to give back to Christ and give back to the Father as a sacrifice is Christ. So he's the offerer and the offered. So the, the, what he's offering is bread and wine, isn't it? Well, it's not. It's the body of Christ. And who is the body of Christ? Who's the body of Christ? So when Abuna offers the bread and the wine, that's the body of Christ. Who's the body of Christ? What's the body of, huh? We are, right? The church is the body of Christ, right? We are members in the body of Christ. This is what St. Paul says, right? We can't be an ear, we can't be an eye, right? So we're all members in the body of Christ. So now Abuna is offering the, the body of Christ. And who's the body of Christ? We're the body of Christ. So Abuna... Christ is offering himself, and he's offering us. And so I come to the liturgy, and I offer Christ, and I offer myself. So a big part of the liturgy is offering oneself, right? That's a big part of it. In fact, one of the things, you know, you see Abuna up here, he picks the, the urban. You know, you, send, you know how he sits there and picks in the, in the early in the morning, if you guys come early enough? Abuna picks the best one. That tradition is kind of an outdated tradition, right? The reason he picks the best one is that people used to bring the bread from home, right? And some people, you know, brought a good one, and some people have a rotten one, and some people have mulchei on theirs. And so, you know, he has to make sure he's, he's sifted through it, right? And so he picks one that's decent. Right now, we have a guy who makes them. They're all, like, pretty much identical, and Abuna's looking for, you know, hairline fractures, you know, to, to pick between, right? But they're all fine, right? But the reason we have this tradition is people used to offer. No one came to church without bringing anything. 
It was unheard of. You didn't just show up to church. You came with bread. You came with candles. You came with oil. You brought the wine. That's why we smell the wine, because someone may have brought bad wine, right? So Buna smells it just to make sure it's not bad. Right now, we know it's good because we bought it, like, you know, a week ago, right? But back then, you never know what someone's bringing, right? So you had to, a couple people had to smell it in case someone has a cold, right? So these are all very practical things, but the, the point I'm trying to make is when we come to the church, we offer, we bring, we bring ourselves. Nowadays, we don't bring stuff. We bring money, and the church goes and buys the stuff, right? It's just more efficient. Right? But we should be bringing everything. We offer ourselves. In fact, the first part of liturgy is called the offertory, and it's the offering of oneself. And so um, the ultimate view of the church is that it's all martyrdom, right? That's the whole point of the liturgy, right? So martyrdom becomes the natural extension of the liturgy right, of offering oneself. Um, St. Ignatius of Antioch has this very famous line. He wanted, he was going to be martyred. They captured him. He's a bishop. They wanted to kill him as usual. And so people were trying to stop him. And he wrote this letter that just stands the test of time. And this has this one quote that just is, he says, I am the wheat of God. So he's linking himself. Look at how much is going on here from what I just said. I'm the wheat of God. So he's linking himself in the Urbana. And I'm ground by the teeth of the wild beasts. So the, the, he's going to be ground up as wheat by the teeth of the wild beasts. That I may be found the pure body of Christ. The, the pure bread of Christ. So when I'm ground up, then I may be found to be the pure bread of Christ. So that's, how, that's what's going to make me into Christ this martyrdom. So even the concept of martyrdom to us isn't something that is hideous and scary and something we should be running from, right? But it is embraced by the church, right? We know it's something that happens. We know it's going to happen again. We know it's going to happen in different countries, right? And as Christians, this is something where we're supposedly preparing for all the days of our life, right? Our whole life is about dying slowly, to our selfishness, to our egos, to our controlling, to our anger, to our whatever issues we have, because we all have them, right? We need to be dying to those things and eventually get to the point where we're dead. Living, we're dead, we're dead, and it doesn't really matter, right? Um, one, of the reasons, one of the reasons we celebrate martyrs in the church, well, I don't know if I should get into that. Um, okay, so the, the final question is, do we, does Christ offer himself for us or do we offer ourselves for Christ? Does Christ offer himself for us? Abunab Shoy Kamil has this really nice story. He went to St. Damiana and he saw the place where they buried the St. Damiana and the 40 virgins. And he, he had this meditation. He says, did Christ die for them or did they die for Christ? Did Christ die for them or did they die for Christ? Both, right? So there's this, does Christ offer himself for us or do we offer ourselves to Christ? Both, right? Think about the, the five loaves and the two fish, right? Did, did, did Christ give us bread or did we give Christ bread? Both, right? We offered him the bread we had, the five loaves and the two fish, and then he did what? He blessed it and offered it back. 
So did he give it to us or did we give it to him? Both. Right? So we're in, in Christ when he's being crucified and when he's being resurrected. So the crucified Christ that we see, where are we in this icon? We're in Christ. We take the Eucharist. We're the body and blood of Christ. He's on the cross. So where are we? We're in him. We're dying with him. We're crucified with him. Right? So this is the concept of martyrdom in the church. I think everybody is done. <laughs> um, okay, and the final thing I'll say is, um, she's so cute. Um, and, and so I think the final thing I'll say is, you know, there's this part in the liturgy uh, and Buddha says, he offered unto us what is his, right? He offered to us what is his. Um, but there's, a, there's one part I want to point out in the Epiclesis, in this part of the liturgy where Buddha asked for the descent of the Holy Spirit. He asks for the Holy Spirit to descend on both the body, the bread and the wine, and on the people. So there's actually two things that happen at that time, right? He descends on both and changes both. All right. I'll, uh, do you guys want to watch a video or... Oh, man, I think the video is all messed up. We are tired and sad and in great pain. And their brother didn't spare an effort in trying to find them when he went to Cairo. And I found that they had been martyred. That's when we were relieved because they kept their faith. That's an amazing line. That's when we were relieved that they kept their faith and it didn't waver. He says, the kidnapping period was very painful and continued for 45 days but we felt relieved after hearing that they had been martyred. This is the brother. Our family lost three. The martyrs Bishoy and Samuel and my younger brothers are my younger brothers. Martyr Mina is my second cousin. And the fourth martyr Miled is my brother-in-law. We felt most relieved seeing the video of the martyrdom because if it weren't for this video, they would have gone in vain, or they would still, we'd still be looking for them. Tell me about your faith so we can learn from you. That Daishish or Isis gave us more than we deserve. By leaving the videos of the martyrs saying Jesus' name as they were beheaded, all of them said, O Lord Jesus, as they were dying. This increased our faith. Wow. Yes, they told me that Isis was coming. They, if they told ISIS was coming now, what would you do? I'd say, I'd make them tea. She says, weren't you scared that they do the same to you? She says, no, I wasn't afraid. If my sons weren't afraid, how would I, why would I be? I think they showed this, then they stop and stop it here. No. All right, I'll, uh, So that picture that you can't see right there is um, we got the opportunity to visit some of the parents of uh, one of the martyrs in Minya. Um, 
And uh, the experience of being with them was, was really amazing. I mean, this woman was talking about the martyrdom of her son, and she was completely happy and almost joyful at his martyrdom. It was just uh, a sight to behold. I was translating uh, to my kids, and I could barely say it without breaking down myself, and she was just, you know, she had superhuman strength, right? All of us have children know this is not even something we can comprehend, right? And yet she was as, as peaceful and as calm as, as anyone I've ever seen. All right, I think I'll end. Does anyone have any questions, comments? Um, I'll leave you with this quote. If you see a man who has sinned and you do not pity him, the grace of God will leave you. Whoever curses bad people and does not pray for them will never come to know the grace of God. So it's something to think about. Um, and we're talking about ISIS people, you know, doing some really bad things. This quote is more about, you know, your neighbor, your spouse, your friend, your coworker, your boss, your employee, right? That this is this is really where we interact with, you know, the bad people, and we curse them and we hate them um, for what they do. When in fact, we know that the grace of God leaves us if we do something like that. Do we have any other questions, comments, criticisms, complaints, conundrums? I mean, when you, what do you mean by Christ praying for them? For the sinner? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think um, my sense is, you know, prayer for somebody who is unrepentant, you know, it, it has several layers to it. Hey, guys. Welcome. Um, it has several layers to it. The first part of it, I mean, do you want to know what Christ's prayer is? I don't know what Christ's prayer is. I can tell you what my prayer would be. The first part of it would be my own asking God to open my heart enough to love, right? And, and to, to love somebody who is not loving me back or hurting me or my enemy or, 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 or persecuting me or whatever the case may be. So that's the first prayer. And then the, the second part of it would be um, simply an acknowledgement that I love that person. And I think that would be it, right? I mean, I think if I pray for somebody, if I pray for my enemy, for example, I think all I, would, all I could do is acknowledge that that person's a human being who's weak and broken, right? And put my feelings and thoughts before God in which case I couldn't hate. Do you know what I mean? So all, that's, all I think I, all, that's all I think I'd imagine doing. And I don't know what Christ's prayer is for these people. But. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, yeah, I don't know what the son's prayer is like, but I can, I think all, all we can do 
is put our own limitations up before God, right? And just have his light expose them, right? And, and once we acknowledge our own limitations in loving them, I mean, you can have an argument and say, look, guy's a jerk, can't love him, right? And you can have that discussion with God, right? But then God's light on that discussion you know, it's kind of like, you know, you and I can say, ah, oh, guy's a jerk. Yeah, let's hate him. Let's hate him. Deal. And we high-five each other, right? But, you know, you're with whatever, some, you're with Tom Averini, or you're, some, you're with Baba Krillos, and you say, yeah, isn't that guy a jerk? Don't you hate him? And he kind of goes, you know, he looks at you, and you're like, okay, yeah, I shouldn't hate him. Fine. Right? His gaze cleanses and purifies your, your discussion, right? You'd look at him, and you'd realize, okay, yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be saying this stuff, right? And then you'd realize, yeah, I know. He's weak. He's got something. I should be more, you know. So then your, the compassion comes as a result of that openness. Yeah, what were you going to say? That's certainly a, that's certainly a prayer. So what, what, what she said was, you know, on the cross, as he's being crucified, he said, Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? So there's, that's another very good prayer. Well, I mean, you know, I, you, now you're entering into the subtlety of the Trinitarian relationship, right? Which, you know, I don't know enough about. Yeah, teach. That's a, so to what she's saying is, um, since we have such a strong free will and that God never imposes himself on us, maybe the prayer for a sinful person is, you know, that that person allow God to work in his life. You know, and, and you're, asking, you're asking God to soften his heart to some degree so that he accepts the work of God in his own life. Yeah. Any other questions I can't answer? Hmm? I'm, I'm so good at that one. It's like my specialty. And glory be to God forever, amen. Set up a prayer. Make us for they saith all thanksgiving, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to die. Christ Jesus, our Lord.